Guess what? It's the Luminaries with David Odyssey. This time, something a little different. The Astrology of Nas, and you're gonna love it because we've got special guest Jordan Temple in tow for this one. Okay, before that, we are gonna talk about, and don't act like you didn't see this coming, the Sharon Stone audiobook. I also have some thoughts on a fabulous Shirley MacLaine movie I just saw, I'm a Faggot, and uh, a report from my recent Akashic reading. Thanks for listening. Tell everyone you know to subscribe. Love you. I'm a freaky little whore from the 314, always one and more. Betty, baby, you don't even know. Okay, the Slater, Slater with three Y's remix of Give Me More, which is available on YouTube, is really excellent work. Um, I, along with a uh, recent previous guest, Layla Halabian, saw Slater, um, a Pride kickoff weekend 2019 at Elsewhere, uh, beloved Elsewhere, I think the best club in, in, in New York. Um, and that was a fag world, okay? Fag world exists and there are portals and that was like the bottoms, the bottoms united. I do think her recent work, um, which previous guests Ben Leary and I have agreed on is a quantum leap. And I think she's like actually hitting it. Um, so I really celebrate her. And <sighs> speaking of give me more remixes, I have been, <sighs> What do we do with Lil' Kim? Because, you know, Gabby Hornig and I, previous guest Gabby Hornig and I, no one is more valuable than Lil' Kim. Um, I tried to watch her video from about two years ago, and it is just bizarre. Like, she is just a different person, and her voice is different, and I have to let go of that. But it's just like, I, I will say that I did think that the Lil Nas X video, which of course, hello... Um, I do think that it is what Lil' Kim thought um, how many licks would look like because the how many licks video is historic. It's spectacular. It is kind of, it really covers a lot of ground, um, but it's, it, it looks like shit in the best way. And I think in her head, it, it has a similar chaotic, it has this like, storytelling uh in a fever dream vibe uh akin to uh montero call me by your name um you know i miss her and love her this week's episode first of all i'm just so grateful that that jordan temple is on it uh jordan is um a writer on atlanta and on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, I celebrate that he's a writer on that that show. And uh, Jordan, of course, you know, I used to write about in my Time Out days. He did, um, he did Hidden Fences and The Color Urkel. Um, and he is kind of beloved and, uh, in, in, in the milieu. Um, and we did Nas, which was exciting. Just because it was different, it's someone whose music and whose legacy I'm not as familiar with. And... It was just a really exciting dialogue, so I, I hope you enjoy it, and I'm really pleased with it, and listen, I am David Odyssey, so it is important that I am kind of pushing it a little bit and doing something interesting and challenging myself, okay? Um, all right, I got my Akashic reading on Friday, and it was 
listen, if you need the number of my Akashic reader, honey, the records were open um, and they were, it was a very intense reading. Um, The guides told me that I live in the void. I live outside of karma and I live in the, I, I drink from the cup of creation and destruction. So that was chic. Um, but, you know, since the reading, I'm feeling quite I, I am feeling a, um, uh, a, a, a streamlined sense of confidence. You know, I've, I've been really at odds with the gifts that emerge, the career paths that I've been left behind. And the the guides affirmed for me that for me, chaos is going to not chaos, but the Pluto and Scorpio in the 10th house, the constant metamorphosis, the constant death and rebirth. Um, that is my arena, which I think was comforting. And it gave me a, a sense of like, and they really were like, yeah, be one thing today and be something different tomorrow. There are no consequences. Like, and they were just like, yeah, uh, have a crazy cut body now. Uh, wear crazy clothes now and then change it to a different body in different clothes whenever you want. So that, that was reassuring. And I, I feel different. I feel, I feel ready to submit to what's coming and to not be battling against all the gifts that are coming. So I, I, I really, I believe, um, God, the reading was insane. They they also want me to be going out. They were like, you have those the liminal space of creation and destruction you'll find if you go out at night. And they were like, you need to turn up your your protection spells to a hundred percent. And they said you can archets like one of the things they recommended was bats. They were like, take bats with you. So summon bats, which I kind of love because I've been reading Tom King's. Batman. I read the finale of that. Um, so Tom King is uh, kind of an acclaimed uh, DC writer. He wrote this very beautiful Mr. Miracle series. And he's been writing Batman for the past few years, which I have been able to read thanks to the lovely work of the New York Public Library. I just want to reiterate to uh, Ronald Reagan and all those who argue for the uh, dis- this disbanding of government and social services and public services that I am a weekly library visitor. One time I saw someone on Twitter posted like, does anyone even go to the library anymore? And this very like, does anyone still use DVDs anymore? And it's like, actually, I do uh, treasure my DVD collection. And actually, I can't afford the amount of books and comics I read. And I do go to the library. Okay. God, what a stand to take. All right. Tom King's Batman series, as illustrated by Mikhail Janine and most especially Clay Mann, who I think Clay Mann really knows his way around the the human body, but damn, he draws he draws a really good looking man. Okay. I found his Batman series to be really beautiful and really healing, as has been discussed previously. I think one of the greatest films of time is Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the 70-minute original animated film available now on Netflix, which is not about the gritty uh, Republican survivalism that uh, straight men adore. It is about a person who's made a vow to themselves 
to live their life a certain way and what happens when happiness and love threatens that and that reconciliation. What I loved about this recent run in the comics is, first of all, the relationship between Batman and Catwoman is truly sexy and it's very adult. Um, I think he really can draw, he, he, he really writes couples well. And it's about uh, Batman coming to a point of wanting happiness. Understanding that he's Batman and understanding that he has an opportunity to shed something and to integrate. And it was really profound and beautiful. And I guess to me, maybe I'll get a bat tattoo. I'm now just thinking about literally summoning a swarm of bats every time I go out to kind of act as guardians and not mean that I'm completely losing myself. I mean, the issue is... First of all, now that I'm a little bit more in touch with the invisible forces which govern all reality, um, my recent forays into the backyard of the Rosemont have been a little bit more intense because I'm able to spot demons uh, faster. And of course, the demons come straight to me, you know, and I've just been like, how am I going to do this? You know, I've always been so... A lot of anxiety gets triggered in the nightlife arena, but it's also the place of greatest relief uh, and release. So there is just this this aspect of if I could arm myself and if I could be true to the vows that I've made and and to the kind of power that I am while um, being able to occupy the demimond and the world above. You know, I do have a Sun-Pluto opposition, so just being able to kind of occupy both spaces. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's that. What's interesting with Batman, I I think I just read Brian Michael Bendis's again. Thank you, New York Public Library. I read Brian Michael Bendis's run on uh, Superman. You know, I adore Superman and I'm excited for the Ta-Nehisi Coates movie. If they ever need someone to write a sequel or a Supergirl movie, please let me know. Um, Tanazi, uh, uh, Brian Michael Bendis's Superman was also very much about uh, this character making uh, big decisions about his happiness. And then, you know, when we think about the current run uh, of X-Men, which is obviously revolutionary and exciting, and if you need reading recommendations, let me know, um, it's very much about the mutants um, claiming sovereignty and going to a tropical island and making a home for themselves. And obviously there's a lot of like, you know, 1948 Israel and the kind of re-traumatization addiction that the Israelis have uh, is certainly being expressed and it's very fucked up and there's all these complications, which I find very interesting to explore. But um, the characters are ready to move on. The characters are ready to try to, to, to be happy. Um, and I also found that interesting, you know, with Wonder Woman uh, Earth One by Grant Morrison. There wasn't really Wonder Woman trying to make it in man's world. It was Wonder Woman just claiming her throne. So this form of storytelling, it, it, it is interesting because I do feel like I'm rewatching Ugly Betty and I do find it burdensome, a lot of the shows and the style of storytelling, which is, you know, 22 episode seasons outside of a very Shakespearean series like Angel, whose thesis is, you know, life never goes the way you want it to go. I I do wonder, like, 
I don't really want to watch a show where the character has to be constantly benighted. I'm not saying there shouldn't be conflict and, and you need that, but there's just this aspect of a more um, integrated, moving, uh, peace-seeking storytelling uh, that I find exciting. I don't know how that translates and I don't know how you keep that exciting necessarily, but I think it's really true and I think it allows the characters to not just be these victims. And I I don't know, maybe this is just where I am in recovery, but I'm like, yeah, we got to work with this. Um, Jupiter just hit my ascendant last weekend, so I'm kind of in like I think I'm really going through a good part of my inner ad- my 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 second adolescence that I never got to have as a teen. I think a lot of the tantrums of adolescence I've had those the last two years. I'm now going through the like I want to have fun. I want to be free. I want to be Supergirl. I want to be this alien who's just landed on the planet and who gets to experience teenage girlhood. Okay. Um Yes, you have come to the right place to talk about the Sharon Stone memoirs. Um, Listen, nothing's ever going to top the Demi Moore memoir. First of all, let's just get that loud and clear. The Demi Moore memoir is ghostwritten by Arielle Levy of The New Yorker, who I have interviewed. Once the David Odyssey website is up, you can check out my timeout interview with her. I think she's brilliant. Um, Okay. What's interesting for me about the Demi Moore book and the Sharon Stone book is my Aquarian faggot born in Israel um, Jewish thing. And maybe this is just because I grew up in Texas and I resent it. I like don't I, I don't really care about like America. And it's interesting listening to Demi Moore and Sharon Stone because I'm like, they're so American and it makes you understand why they were so big in the nineties, because I feel like the nineties were so broad in good ways. Um, and in kind of, uh, schmaltzy ways, but you understand why they were superstars because they are so American, you know, Sharon Stone talking about her, like, hard Irish upbringing and taking garbage to the fire pit by the well. And just the way she talks is so America in a way that I find fascinating and bizarre. Um, You know, she has not, I, I have a few chapters left and it's interesting. We haven't gotten a Catwoman yet. Uh, as you know, uh, as anyone who loves me know, I think Catwoman starring Halle Berry is one of the great pleasures of being alive on this earth is watching that film. And Sharon Stone's performance in it is truly genius. Like, it is a true camp, um, intentional, brilliant villain. It, it's so much fun. Um, it's such a bad movie. It's incredible. Um, and listen... She hasn't mentioned it yet. We'll get to it. Um, She does talk about Casino, which is like Michelle Pfeiffer in The Witches of Eastwick, uh, like Regina, uh, like, not Regina, um, 
like Gabrielle Union. Sorry, I was because uh, you know the Regina Hall Gabrielle Union friendship. I was I was uh, mismatch. Like Gabrielle Union in Bring It On, like Michelle Pfeiffer in The Witches of Eastwick, Sharon Stone in Casino at the time of filming is the most beautiful woman on earth. She is absolutely. You know, there's a reason they air Casino after Drag Race uh, on VH1 because they know what the faggots are coming for. Okay. Um, you know, she's so, she's so Pisces. She's so, obviously she's extremely intelligent. She's extremely like psychically tapped in. It's hard to get her to get a lot of vulnerability from her. She's literally Sharon Stone. It's not the same as Demi Moore, where I just felt like the heart was totally open. But I am certainly enjoying myself. You know, I don't put it up there with like Angelica Houston or Diane Keaton, but she, she hits she hits her marks. Okay. Um, I want to say that I watched, thanks to Lulu Krauss, uh, you know, the kind of weaver of the tapestry of the luminaries, uh, my queen. I watched the film What a Way to Go, starring Shirley MacLaine, which I had never seen or heard of. Run, Don't Walk. It's from, I think, 1964. It's about Shirley MacLaine is a woman who doesn't want to be rich who ends up marrying five times and every husband gets really, really rich. And it's like this unbelievably lavish satire. Edith Head does the costumes. And one of her husbands is Paul Newman, who is... I don't know how anyone could be that hot. I don't know how anyone could be that charged with sexual charisma. Yes, I loved HUD. Um... He is so nasty. Um, it's just crazy. And anyways, my dream is for them to remake that movie. And I think, as I have said on this podcast, I you know I want the Ace Ventura reboot with Macy Rodman. And I do think if you made What a Way to Go again, it should be with Macy Rodman. Um, I, you know, I'm deciding with my Ugly Betty, you know, Listen, Ugly Betty has very long seasons. It's 24-episode season, so I'm thinking about jumping around. I need a new project, which could be Felicity or it could be Alias. I will say this about Ugly Betty. Um, first of all, Rebecca Romaine is a team player. Rebecca Romaine deserves an Oscar for her work as Mystique in X-Men. I, as a nine-year-old, seeing that fucking trans anarchist terrorist performance that did change my life her action figure changed my life she can do no wrong um and by the way you know say what you will about star trek discovery i think she was delightful okay really enjoying her on ugly betty i don't think she was very well used the transphobic jokes on the show uh though i appreciate the trans character uh you know don't age super well not that i'm policing it's just kind of a little cringeworthy you know, what I'm really enjoying about Ugly Betty is obviously Michael Urie's character, Mark, who's gay, is iconic. And obviously Vanessa Williams, who plays the kind of Miranda Priestly overlord uh, villainess, is so seminal. He plays her assistant, and there's this really beautiful aspect where she's the villain, but she is supportive of Rebecca Romaine's character being trans, and she... She 
is Mark's boss and tormentor and she makes fun of him and she'll sometimes like there's a part where she's like no you're too gay like she'll she'll make fun of his fagginess but it's earned I believe that she like this character and this actress is clearly aligned with gay people I mean you know they they did save the best for last in Priscilla Queen of the Desert she's a two-time drag race host regardless so when she makes fun of the gay character, it feels right and it feels earned and it's healing. And to me, it's just so different than the kind of these bullshit sacred lamb characters now where no one will make fun of them because everyone is an ally, which means that no one's really an ally and there's no actual real. It just isn't real to me. And, you know, this weekend I rewatched, and let's get into it, I rewatched Cruel Intentions. Joshua Jackson with platinum blonde hair. Speaking of Ugly Betty, fucking Eric Mabius. It's me, the Gregster. Hello. Um, Joshua Jackson's gay character is legendary. And obviously Ryan Phillippe is this, like, horrific satanic womanizer. But to me... Of course, Ryan Phillippe's best friends with the fag weed dealer who is sleeping with all the closeted football players. Of course, Ryan Phillippe, who's this like intellectual, effet, a private school demon who lives on Park Avenue, would be friends with the the kind of sinister faggot. Like, I found that really... F- I just still think it's real and... I don't know. What are what are the gay characters on the Gossip Girl reboot going to be like? You know, I, I I think you need it to be a little jagged, and I think you need these alliances to be earned rather than this idea that everyone is everything. But again, I am Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus and Capricorn. I am an ancient one. You know, march me out and and you know take me to the camps. Okay, um, cruel intentions. Obviously, could never be made again. Obviously, I do think Cruel Intentions is better than Dangerous Liaisons. I gotta tell you, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar, Glenn Close is incredible in in Dangerous Liaisons, but I do think Sarah Michelle Gellar, it's a little bit more subtle and it's a little bit more rapturous. And obviously, I think that um, the directions, the the, the changes the writer-director makes to to Cruel Intentions uh, work for everyone. Uh, especially, obviously, the Reese Witherspoon character. Also, Dangerous Liaisons, which similar to... I, I can't keep going on this rant about Portrait of a, of a Woman uh, or Portrait of a Lady, but Dangerous Liaisons is predicated on the notion that Michelle Pfeiffer is so in love with John Malkovich that she dies of a broken heart. So, obviously, I, you know, I kind of prefer the, the ending of Cruel Intentions. Okay. It is a triggering movie, and and I was afraid of it when they would air it on FX when I was a kid because I do find it disturbing. And Ryan Phillippe's charm while being um, a serial thriller, it's very upsetting. You know, it's very, very disturbing. However, it's they just don't make them like that anymore. I know that Sarah Michelle Keller just, just got cast on an Amazon pilot. 
I'll do anything for her. I just will. Like, I just think she's so brilliant. And Christine Baranski is, you know, thank you, Christine. Okay. I will say what was nice about watching Cruel Intentions is I do feel like that era of the teen star is uh, coming back for better or for worse. But I do think, you know, the 90s were an era of beautiful teenage hedonism. I mean, by the way, in terms of beauty, I am grateful for Jacob Elordi. But if you want to compare to Paul Walker, Freddie Prinze, uh, Ryan Phillippe, uh, Marlon Wayans, um, you know, you're going to need to really pump it out. But I do think that the culture has come back to the place of the 90s media consumerism, which came to this point of, oh, there's a a boom in the economy, but the only way to, the only people who have money are teens. And I think we've come back to that point now that it's, um, people are so afraid of the Gen Z kids. They have the money and they have the power. So I do think, you know, I am watching Generation which I find ultimately delightful. Um, I think Euphoria is 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 a little more. It does different things than Euphoria, and obviously, we are who we are will always hold a special place in my heart. But I don't think it'll be in movies because I think movies are kind of dead right now. But in TV, at least, we are getting this kind of beautiful teen resurgence. And in terms of that, in terms of that, the the pulchritude, the severity, the immediacy, the immediacy and the intensity, which makes those scenes in Cruel Intentions so powerful, intense. I do think like it's really. I do feel like that is on the menu, so I'm quite excited about that. I do need a new show, um, so you know, please let me know what you think. Uh, I should be watching. Um, you know, thoughts and prayers. And, um, I started Rosemary's Baby today, loving it. After Cruel Intentions, it's just good to watch another movie set, uh, Parkside. Um, you know, Cruel Intentions is making me obviously miss Single White Female, the greatest film of all time, but I digress. Um, you know, listen, uh, there's a lot more to discuss I really hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about Nas uh, as much as I did. And um, thank you for listening. You know where to find me, okay? Love you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, Welcome to another special episode of The Luminaries. This time we are breaking the usual um, format, which is um, women that any cliched white homosexual would be obsessed with and uh, (laughs) going into new uh, unventured territory. I am David Odyssey and uh, I am wanting to explore the unknown. In this case, uh, we are... I was fortunate because I I got to really research someone and learn about someone I didn't know a lot about, and there seems to be a very complicated legacy here, so I'm excited to to discuss that. I have recruited 
uh, someone I'm, I whose work I'm very fond of, um, who is killing it in LA, Jordan Temple. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for having me. When we when we talked about who you'd like to do, Nas was one of your ideas, and um, you know you did such a good job of saying like there's good, there's bad and ugly. Um, mm-hmm. and we don't want to fully throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's mm-hmm. been kind of something I've been trying to figure out with this podcast a lot. Like last week I did Anna Nicole Smith's chart and like, you know, watching clips of the Anna Nicole Smith show and watching her treatment and I would say abuse of her son was um, intense and I think with a lot of artists, I think what astrology does is it gives you the whole life and it gives you kind of a zoomed out picture and it helps you kind of put, it helps you put a person's legacy into a bit of a framework. Um, So, you know, I just want to put that out there from the start, which is with a lot of people, we're using the astrology to kind of like understand their legacy, understand their kind of motivating purpose, understanding what their art did. And with that, we're taking in the complicated aspects, the human aspects, the failings, the fucked up parts, you know? Absolutely. Taking in the whole person. Yes. Um, Which is, I, I, I don't, like, I think we're still figuring out how to do that right now more than ever. So uh, for that, I'm grateful you're here. So I guess I, well, before we start, I think, Jordan, what is your sign? I, I have a guess, but I'm just curious. What's your guess? You're a Leo, right? Ha, huh. I'm a Gemini. Really? Smack dab in the middle, June 8th. I have the same birthday as Kanye, Joan Rivers, and um, Jerry Stiller. Okay, that's a really hot list. <laughs> like, that is like, that's, okay, very good. Uh, you're having an eclipse two days after your birthday this year, so, you know, more will be revealed, uh, literally. So, you're a Gemini. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, I, I'm curious. Um, you, you know, you had proposed Nas, and for me and for listeners uh, of this podcast who are probably <laughs> more on the astrology of Britney Spears' Tina Turner spectrum, I would love uh-huh. if you could, like, introduce us to Nas and introduce us to his, to your relationship with him. Well, Nas is, um, I think in a lot of ways, not just complicated because of the things he's done and he's gone through and experienced, but because he really is a prodigy like talent. Mm -hmm. Um, He recorded his first album when he was 19, which was basically, you know, Illmatic is, which was recently to connect that uh, that fan base that is not so familiar. It was he Illmatic was put into the Library of Congress along with Janet Jackson this past mm-hmm. week, along with Rhythm Nation. Um, mm-hmm. But um, he was basically recording and telling everyone, like you know, a street prophet in a lot of ways. Sorry, street, I just lost street you poet. Uh, for a moment. Uh, uh, Okay, Hello? sorry, can you just say that again? I just lost you after Rhythm Nation. Oh, well, Nas basically was recording and telling everyone his story up until 18 or 19, which is when he recorded Illmatic. 
Um, and it's something you can close your eyes and see. I was listening to it last week and it brought me tears, not just because, you know, of the vivid storytelling, but I mean, my connection to him is I grew up in a project uh, just a half a mile away, smaller, seemingly less dangerous, but still working class, majority black, and, you know, had a lot of, you know, uh, dangerous aspects, a lot of a lot of unknowns um, and he's somebody that everyone in the area always looked up to and understood that danger, you know, of, uh, you know, gun violence, drugs, you know, Queensbridge is the biggest project in the United States. So when, you know, there's countless albums he's had telling about this one place, it's a whole world in that regard. Um, and I think that his world got like a little bit bigger once he was able to leave that place. But that mindset and the difficulty and the PTSD, I think always stays with you. He also dropped out of school, like when he was in middle school. Um, and so a lot of the things that he learned, I think he was able to combine. You know, I always, you know, with whatever street smarts or whatever books he learned, cause he was well, well read. You know, I was raised by a single mom, too, and I had a bookcase in the house. And, you know, that's the thing that keeps kids out of trouble. You know, it's not just like keeping kids out of trouble, but it's a combination of people call street smarts, which is like, if you know, you know, and things that you can read in a book. I think it's so weird, you know, people undermine street smarts or anything that Nas could represent, because it's like, he can know what you know. You can never know what he knows. And that's the thing mm. I respect and I, I love the most about Nas is because I listen to him. And I know this is somebody that's really working through something. Um, I don't like <laughs> just to, um, this is maybe a little bit for later, but in the bigging up of him, you know, I'm reminded, which my uh, a friend of mine brought this up. It's like, I don't believe in the, uh, sanctimoniousness I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing but it's like I don't believe in the oh I don't believe in the sanctity of the black man is what Khalees um said which is his ex-wife and oft you know recounted uh, uh tales of abuse and different things um or accounts rather uh, you know it, and it was complex in that way because it's easy for somebody to leave a project like Nas did and to have this great story and then have that complicated and, and kind of muddied by any allegations of abuse or anything of that na nature. Like, and it's like, yeah, you know, the person you, you are in recovery and the things that you're working through, it doesn't mean that you're not like worthy. And it doesn't mean you're a God. I think a lot of people did. I looked up to Nas like, like a prophet, like I was saying earlier. And I think that my connection to him runs deep through that because you feel abandoned, you know, mm. like he's somebody like that made me feel like, um, you know, not in the street, not somebody who was like a nerd is like somebody who's just observing. And that's what Illmatic is. You listen to Illmatic and it's so, and beyond Illmatic, I mean, my favorite song of his is off Godson. Godson is, you know, and this is a, you know, he has Godson across the belly and he has this tattoo representing him basically being this prophet. 
being mm. G, a Jesus figure for the hood. And he has this song on there called um, Dance. It's after his mother died. And it is, it kind of reminds me of Luther Vandross' Dance with My Father again, but it's about him dancing with his mother. And like, it just mm. reminds me that, you know, not just of his humanity, but like this, this quote, devastating quote, and it's a beautiful song of him just imagining what it would be like to not only dance with his mother, but how she's doing in heaven and looking down on him and watching him. But it's a reminder of this quote, it's like, you know, there are people who have lost their mothers and people who don't know what's coming. And it's like, um, saying like a lot, but <laughs> I feel, that quote and in Nas's legacy it's like him trying to take all of the complicated sides of himself these angry part this part that longs for his mother this part that's salvaging his relationship with his father he has this song called um it's like bridging the gap i'm i'm not quite that's not quite this name of the song I don't think it's like bridging the gap or something but he has a song with his dad who is a blues player so he's the he's the son of a blues player mm. and his father father is really talented and he he gets that the I think the wizened kind of street knowledge from his family with his mother having books in the house and then his father just the the music side from his from his father and that's also another thing of like you know, you know, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater because is like my relationship with my father. A lot of men, especially a black men, relationship with their fathers could be complicated. And our fathers are very, some of the very, many of them are very talented, but maybe weren't around for us like we wanted them to. Mm. And I think Nas has had to take that same thing going into his relationships, you know, He's like, you know, how people see me. He's like, how did I see my dad? And the, you know, that's kind of how I see him at the same token. It's like, how do I make amends with who this man is and who he isn't? And who am I projecting onto him? Um, and it, it says more thinking about that and reflecting who he is in light of basically this legacy Emmy, because he should have got an uh, Emmy, excuse me, Grammy. Well, who knows? <laughs> he, he could be an EGOT, but this legacy Grammy, you know, it's, 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 and he's at 47, 48 years old. You look at people like him, his contemporary Jay-Z, <clears throat> who he had beef with back in the day. Um, you know, they had the barbs going back and forth, ether. Uh, this record, which was about Jay-Z. And you think about like, oh man, what are these, what are their lives like? Like, who are these men outside of the headlines? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I think Nas is somebody who's always working towards a growth mindset. And it's like, I just wonder how, who the people who, don't see that he's growing like who they would be given his upbringing and his lack of either opportunity or somebody to kind of be there who wasn't going to be somebody that ultimately lead, lead to early demise. A lot of people died 
All the people that he raps about in Elmatic are dead. Almost all of them. Um, so when he's talking about these people and you're you're seeing the images, and then and it was written when you're hearing like gunshots after street dreams, because he's he's painting this really beautiful picture. And then you're seeing, you know, of fast life, girls, chains, clothes, whatever. And then you hear gunshots and it's like, oh yeah, this is real. This is like a reminder of the things not only he survived and the the crime and the murder <laughs> that comes with it. And then the other, you know, it's not just, it's equal parts flashy and flossy as it is to like murder. And this is like, people have died over these things that, you know, capitalism so readily gives people who, you know, don't look like you without, without as much, you know, blood to shit, to kind of shed for it. I don't know. I feel like I'm speaking in a circle, but I feel like I'm no, kind of making yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You're giving us like a very good backdrop and a framework. So thank you for that. I mean, mm -hmm. to start, I love what you said about, um, you said that Nas can know people, but people can't know Nas, right? No, I'm saying like, it's like you, when it comes to that upbringing and is an upbringing I had growing up in the projects, people talk about street smarts, but they don't actually know what that is. They don't know what sharpens that intuition. So when I say that and people undermine street smarts, I'm saying, and then, you know, people with supposed street smarts go into the world and have to learn what other people know via book smarts or whatever comes from an institution. It's the mentality of like, yeah, you could, I could know what you know. You can never know what I know. Mm. That's what he combines. That's how he's able, that's how Jay-Z is able to do what he's doing. That's how Nas is able to do what they're doing because they both have street smarts as a foundation for living day to day as like, if I make this decision over this one, I may die or somebody I know may die or even to a lesser degree. How am I sharpening my observational skills from day to day? Because it's all observation when it comes to writing. It's not any, it's the input output. Your input is directly what's ever happened, whatever's happening around you. And that's, that's what they're doing. And that's how they're able to do, to, to achieve what they have. Cause they take that base level observation of street smarts and then combine it with the knowledge of, you know, you know, ancient wisdom, religion, uh, just books in general of any kind, philosophy, and you take those things. The the more things that are hard to difficult to explain because it's if you know, you know that street smarts, mm -hmm. and then the things that are readily available, the things you can basically Google, or the things you have to go to an institution for, and. Yeah. Let's start there because Nas is a Virgo and Virgo he has a, he has is a song about it. Yeah, which I did not get it. Like I yeah, I yeah, listened to it I, the and I get that Ludacris is also a Virgo, but like it, I was just like this doesn't have anything to do with anything unless I'm completely missing something which there is a high likelihood of, but I was just like No, he didn't. He just kind of <laughs> threw it in, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He's a very frustrating rapper artistically being that talented. It's just like, okay, uh what are you doing here, Nas? I'm confused with your message. Right. Um Yeah. But I know, love you. 
Listen, uh, I mean, what's interesting from what you were saying to me that that uh, that that I kind of clocked is, you know, Virgo is the Sphinx. Virgo is between Leo and Libra. So if we think of Libra as the head of the goddess Venus and Leo as the body of the lion, that's Virgo. It's the Sphinx. Virgo. Virgo often employs a sense of mystery. Virgo is very much about observing, synthesizing, breaking down. So, you know, Beyonce is also a Virgo. Obviously, they're very different. And she has a lot more Libra energy going on in her chart. So she's a Virgo. They almost like they almost winded up together. Which is bizarre. Um, which, I, I mean, Jay-Z, Jay-Z's, like face is jay-z's face like nas is forever yeah. handsome like people could not know who nas is but you look him up he looks the same you know right. it's true he has <laughs> aged very nicely because yeah i was watching his like kennedy center thing and it was like okay you look pretty good now nah, yeah nas is forever handsome it's it's like you can't you can you know jay-z says there's no such thing as an ugly billionaire and it's like of course he would say that you're ugly <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Nas could never, you know. Yeah, and Virgo, there is an aspect with Virgo of mystery, perfectionism, rigor, and mm. you, you know, I I do think with Beyonce, like no one really knows Beyonce. Beyonce is not personable. She's not open hearted. She's no. not raw, and that's not what we go to her for. Right. Um, and and we're gonna get into Nas's artistry, but I do think there is something you're saying about uh, that goes well, I think, with his Virgo son, which is Virgo. There is there is a sense of rigor and kind of hardness in often in terms of the presentation, mm-hmm. um, and it's more about this kind of perfectionism. Um, yeah. Which I do also think, like from what I'm understanding, and and I spoke with my friend Tomiki about this, I get a sense that his 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 kind of precision, um, his lyrical sharpness, and um, the kind of exactitude and the structure of his storytelling is one of the things that really set him apart, which is very mm-hmm. Virgo to me, right? Mm-hmm. And also okay. held him back. Go on. It's uh, limiting. Well, you know, yeah. it just uh, just kind of telling a little bit of a queen story. Um, Nas wasn't very open to listening to beats from the Neptunes. That exactitude held him back in understanding how instrumentals could be heard because he had a very boom bap sensibility and that made him think about lyricism. But the Neptunes in any case, like they came to Queens and they, they were like, Nas, we want to work with you. This is this is Chad Hugo and Pharrell before they blew up. And he was like, these beats are weird. So they mm-hmm. went to Nori, another rapper, Noriega, from Queens. And they made what, what? They made um, this song, Shut Up. I mean, he has countless, countless records. Nori has big songs. Yeah. And it's big Nori, big Nori songs, but it's like the sound he didn't get on board with. So he couldn't evolve past Boom Bap. That exactitude held him back. Like it's Chad Hugo and for us. We know him today, but back then that would have been huge for Nas if he would have adopted it into a sound, you know, but he couldn't. 
So this is amazing because I think this is a, a really critical aspect. Nas, his Mercury, Mercury is a communication expression. His Mercury is conjunct Pluto. Pluto is the destroyer. It's the annihilator. It's this force in a person's chart that if it isn't transformed, it's just going to keep coming back and kind of like <laughs> destroying everything. And so they're conjunct one. They are in a square, so like a conflicting aspect with Saturn in Cancer and his south node. Saturn is rules, but Saturn is also structure. And he has his Saturn, which is meant to be this kind of, this point of learning a lesson. And his Saturn is in Cancer. Cancer is very much the group. It's the collective. It's the tribe. And Cancer is very much the sign of the storyteller. So, you know, we have that aspect. He has his Lilith. Lilith was Adam's first wife in the Garden of Eden who got kicked out. Uh, Lilith represents this point of like exile from the social order. He has his Lilith in Capricorn. Capricorn is the state. Uh, Capricorn is more about the larger government that rules over us. And here he has his North Node. The North Node is higher consciousness and the South Node is lower consciousness. So this is the way I saw it because all of these are in a T-square, which is this, you see this like red pyramid. It's this kind of source of conflict that's supposed to spur on change and evolution. Hmm. Which he does a lot. And he does talk about the pyramids a lot and which he oh. did. And I can, he said, you know, the uh, the noses of the Sphinx had black faces and they were chopped off. And he talks about that. And I can, which I listened to as a kid, which is great. It's also interesting. It's interesting. You talked about the group dynamic because, you know, even though he raps about it and people ostensibly know he's from Queensbridge, he still represents. He carries the QB like chain to not only remind people, but I think it's a reminder of him that he carries his his hood, his his people, all the people that have lived there like around him. And, and on his back, he carries the cross. He talks about that, you know, in a song, he literally has like a carry the cross on God's son. And also in uh, Hate Me Now, where he carries a cross in the video with Diddy with flames and, and, and red, um, you know, swaggy suits on, on Jamaica Avenue. <laughs> you know, this is how I see it. Lilith is in Capricorn, conjunct his North Node. That's the north side of the moon's elliptical uh, with the sun. It's kind of this point of higher consciousness. When we see Lilith in Capricorn, we get this idea. If we think of the Garden of Eden as if Capricorn is very much the state we live in, and that's the Garden of Eden, he's his Lilith he's been kicked out of. And we see his North Node there. I think when it comes to him speaking as this person who grew up, when he speaks about his upbringing as a person who has been left behind by the dominant social order, we get to his North Node. We really touch on this kind of higher consciousness. The Saturn in Cancer, to me, because that Saturn is in a square with Mercury and Pluto, when Mercury is in a square with Saturn, there's this sense that you don't want to listen to anyone and you're not able to take in new ideas. Cancer represents, to me, the musical community, the kind of uh, his peers in the rap world, and uh, those, because Cancer is so much about the story we tell, the ability to kind of transmute that. I get a sense when I see this Mercury-Saturn square, 
for all of his ability to speak about his own experience when it comes to kind of this world of peership. Um, he's not really able to, the way he could take in sounds and influences that he grew up with when it comes to the kind of, uh, peers around him or uh, the cohort he's more like no i'm not going to take this in i think that that is supposed to be a big lesson for him in his astrology with saturn here and with mercury and pluto and i think it's like a big challenge for him the other aspect with yeah. that is he has his moon in aries and his mars in taurus Aries and Taurus are extremely individualistic. Aries is really just like, this is me. This is what I want to eat. This is what I want to fuck. This is what I want to do. Aries is very driven, but it's very limited in the scope of this is me and what I want. And Taurus is all about, this is what I have. This is what I want. His moon, which is where he gets his sense of security is in Aries. Um, so his moon really is all about, I am kind of, when I look out for myself and take care of myself and speak for myself, I feel secure. And his Mars, which is kind of his, his drive, his masculinity, his fire, his individuality is in Taurus, which is, this is what I have. This is what I'm about. And this is what I do. I think it's really hard with those aspects to be able to like, work in a in a larger community or work in a larger dynamic and be able to like take in other influences you know he has his uranus too in libra uranus is kind of revolutionary ideas change um kind of upheaval um and uranus is opposing so it's in conflict with his moon i got a sense there that it's almost like he, if Uranus is what's connect, Uranus really represents like youth movements and like what's coming and the future. I think his sense of security, it's really hard for him to like listen to what's going on after him and what's going on around him. I think he's very in touch with the sounds that he came up from. Um, and we'll get more into that aspect, but, you know, based off of what you were just saying, I, I really think there's a lot in his chart that puts a conflict. And this to me explains a lot of the Jay-Z conflict. Like when it comes to the rappers who are coming up and the rappers around him, I, I, I can see him being a little bit closed off. A little bit. I mean, it's also something to say that. So, you know, that speaks to his artistry that's probably hard for him to take in other ideas when you make a perfect album as a teenager. And then, you know, if you quote unquote fall off, which means just something not being perfect, it's not even falling off, then you're like, I have to get back to that original thing. And yeah. um, I, I I think that that security, when you're talking about the moon in, uh, what is that, Taurus? Aries. Moon is in uh, Aries, Mars is the moon Taurus, is yeah. moon and moon and Aries, like in that security. I think he found security in himself telling these stories because when he looked out of his project window, there was there was nothing but danger and nothing but despair. Like, and he had to tell his own stories to find any semblance of peace. And then those stories were the ones in some ways that because we tell all tell ourselves stories, but in this case they may be in some ways held back 
at least how he heard things. Not like an, a nar- knock on his artistry, but if you hear certain things for a while, you start to believe them. And in that mm. sense, that security was the thing he was hearing. He was just like, I have to tell myself stories because this is the difference between life and death. Even if he was outside of that, I heard a, the interview he had where he's just like, yeah, I close my eyes and I just see, I just see guns mm. and I just see death. Like, <laughs> so you hear that and it's like, oh yeah, what stories do I need to tell myself so I can help quiet this PTSD? And then maybe that's the thing that makes him not want to, you know, pursue other sounds, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's so, cancer is so associated with like the cave. It's like the 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 home, the shelter. And I think his South Node and his Saturn is about like lessons of kind of leaving the cave. And I do get a sense like clearly that that is one of the biggest challenges, which is like, I think it's hard to then be integrating. It's, you know, he, this is what I found most fascinating about his chart. He has what's called a mutual reception. So in astrology, each sign is ruled by different planets and certain planets do well in different signs and certain planets don't do well in different signs. All of the planets in his chart are kind of off. And he has something called a mutual reception, which is Venus is in Scorpio and Pluto is in Libra. They are mismatched. Pluto belongs in Scorpio and Venus belongs in Libra. So we have what's called a mutual reception, which is when two planets are in each other's signs and are in a dialogue. Venus is artistry, beauty, receptivity, femininity, and it's in Scorpio, which is this sign of like death, metamorphosis, the kind of like deep horror and deep truth of life. And then Pluto, which is the destroyer and the annihilator, which really belongs in Scorpio, is in Libra. Libra is the sign of balance, harmony, and beauty. So off the bat, uh, and and that Pluto is right, it's right there in conjunction with his Mercury. So it comes out in how, how he expresses himself. To me, that mutual receptivity is really about this ability to find beauty in the ruins and to to speak from there. Um, because his Venus is in Scorpio, uh, or really more because of the Pluto in Libra, Libra is this space of the ideal, the balance, the harmonic, the beautiful. And it's this idea of wanting everything to be perfect. To me, Pluto, uh, Pluto, it's almost like everything has gone wrong. Everything has crashed. And I'm now going to speak from it. Venus in Scorpio, because Scorpio is the sign of truth, Venus is able to bring beauty to hard truth. Pluto in Libra is able to speak from the destruction of order and speak from the chaos uh, and speak from the annihilation. So that aspect I found really like kind of beautiful in his chart. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Damn. Damn. Wait, say that part, last part again. I got lost. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he has Venus in Scorpio. Scorpio is so tapped into life is about birth, sex, death. 
this is the truth of life. This is the suffering of life. Venus is murder. Exactly. (laughs) Venus is all about like beautiful things, my artistry, my femininity, you know, it's, it's not, doesn't really belong there, but when it's there, there is this kind of ability to say like, through my artistry, I'm going to speak to this. Meanwhile, Pluto, Pluto is this planet of, um, of death and and what comes out of that death it is the metamorphosis pluto represents the underworld libra is supposed to be this kind of domain of the goddess it's the domain of harmony and balance and justice to me he has this thing with pluto and libra where he's saying i am going to take you into my underworld where there is no justice and with my pluto conjunct mercury i'm going to speak from there and express from there um, and, and the Venus in Scorpio is going to speak truthfully. Um, and they're all in a trine, this thick blue line, the supportive aspect with Jupiter and Aquarius. Jupiter is kind of wisdom, knowledge, and Aquarius is all about the airwaves, about disseminating information and about youth culture. So to me, that's kind of how I see the beauty of his work really coming into a connection, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and then the other big aspect that I think is interesting is, you know, he has this Jupiter in Aquarius. So he has this um, abundance and this uh, uh, power when it comes to um, kind of futuristic ideas and youth movements. And then he has his Mercury and Pluto here in Libra. They're in a sextile pattern. So a supportive pyramid with Neptune and Sagittarius. Neptune is the dreams, the kind of collective imagination. And Sagittarius is this very kind of uh, provocative, political, idealistic, um, pushing the envelope sign. So to me, there is this aspect that when his work really speaks to something, when it's able to really um, connect with people who are, are seeking change, you know, Sagittarius and Aquarius are all about, to me, at least change, pushing the envelope forward, changing the status quo when his work, which, you know, with the Pluto and Mercury speaks from these kind of ruins speaks from this place of destruction. I think that's when the real success and the connection happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He talks about it in um, Stillmatic. He talk, He has a song called Destroy and Rebuild. You know, mm. He's talking about the projects, but he's also talking about just culture overall. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a flip on KRS-1's The Bridge is Over when Queensbridge and, you know, certain rappers in the Bronx, including KRS-1 at Beef, and he was just like, you know, KRS-1 was like, you know, y'all didn't originate. Um, hip hop, he's like, the bridge is over. And so Nas flipped that sample and just be like, the bridge is over, the bridge is over, but we can mm. destroy, he's like, he's like, nah, we're the strongest hood, like we can destroy and rebuild it. And he's taking that and he's talking about the bricks, but he's also talking about himself, you know? Mm. It's just like, we, we need to destroy and rebuild. It's kind of like this time in quarantine, like we're literally doing this over Zoom, you know, in part because of the distance, but it's also, because of you know uh just coronavirus and all of us are reinventing in this time you know 
we're all destroying and rebuilding. I think yes. that's the futuristic aspect that he speaks to too. It's Afrofuturistic in a way, even though I don't think he would necessarily talk about it in that way. You know, there's a whole philosophy called the five percenters, the five percent nation. It's, a lot of it is based in, you know, the old cults, kind of uh, in a prison ideology, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, prison, prison philosophies that come out of, you know, Muslim belief systems that are really fragmented. A lot of them, I think, are in some ways misguided, but there's no educational systems to tell you that that's wrong because you go to prison after already dropping out. And then the only thing you have left is 5% of the nation is, you know, that you are 5% God, 95% body or earth is the God body kind of politic that, you know, is kind of obscure, but I think does help a lot of brothers and especially in the projects. It's like, um, and, uh, and this philosophy that Nas also follows, you know, 5% mm-hmm. or you, you hear, you hear it all in Wu-Tang early nineties, God body, 5% or politic is, is sprinkled all throughout, you know, Erica Badu talks about it in, mm-hmm. um, in a, her, her first album, Baduism. Um, she talks about Pisces. She's like one, you know, fish swimming upstream, you know, uh, I have, um, she's like, uh, I have three dollars and six dimes. Yeah, you must. Yeah, you may laugh, but you did not do your math. And the math is, you know, the math, the math of the five percent nation that that speaks to what these numbers mean for this for this group, for black people and what mathematics overall just means. Um, and yeah, it's it's a whole no, that's amazing. And, and belief and system. It, it's interesting because uh, my friend Tomiki was basically saying, you know, you don't really go to his rap for a lot of what later rap rappers would often employ, which is like bragging about wealth. Like you wouldn't really go to Nas for that. Nas is really more about like storytelling about, about the other side. And it's interesting because his Mars and his Venus, so his kind of masculinity, his femininity, his kind of individual artistic receptivity and his individual drive, both square Jupiter. Jupiter is a planet of excess. And when Venus squares Jupiter, it means like, uh oh, there's a little bit of an ostentatious side that doesn't do well for you and that you might get criticized for. And when Mars squares uh, Jupiter, it's similar. It's almost like um, a bravado or a braggadocio that, uh, that, that goes too far and that makes you personally like, um, kind of despise this happened with when we did the astrology of Rasputin he had similar squares with Jupiter which led to his death because the way that he may have been seen or perceived to be ostentatious is what led to his you know is theoretically why a lot of people didn't like him that's you know up to interpretation people didn't like him because he was like uh anyways that's a whole nother podcast but I just think it's interesting that I think for all the the aspects of beauty that are so tied in with his ability to speak to this experience that a lot of people are able to, in this Neptunian way, tap into their feelings and tell a story. 
I think that on a personal level, um, his, and you know, you tell me what you think of this, but astrologically speaking, I think on a personal level, when he tries to speak to his own ego, it doesn't quite work um, in the same hmm. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had that problem, I think on his third album, wait, what's his third album? He has his album called Nostradamus, where he, yeah, he imagines himself as this philosopher king, Nostradamus, right? <laughs> and uh, he has this alter egos and um, it just didn't work conceptually. It's, um, it was yeah. off, it wasn't well received. Um, and yeah, when he speaks to his ego, yet another, you know, another album like that, where it's, it's, you know, going on with this, you know, philosopher king, G, I'm, I'm the son of God kind of thing is like the last supper and all the people are Nas and they're supposed to represent his multiple personalities a little bit, but mm. I thought it was, uh, like, I don't remember a lot of songs from that album. And I, I'm, I'm not like a casual fan. I have dipped in and out less as I've gotten older of Nas, especially as I'm starting to play like instruments. I feel like, not instruments, plural, but like violin. I'm trying to get in mm -hmm. touch with like musicality in a different way. But like listening to him, um, as you know, I've always wanted to play violin as a kid, but I only have been able to as an adult. I've been only Which playing for like four months. Yeah, it's nice. But in that sense, it's like, oh, I'm I'm listening, I'm listening to stuff in a different way. Not just right. from a like, oh, what is this instrumentation, but from just like themes and like you're speak you're saying like him speaking to his ego, it just didn't, a lot of it didn't like jibe well just musically. He was still figuring it out, like trying to still find that perfection, I think, from the first album. And Pete, so too many people big up Illmatic to the chagrin of his other works, which are also great. God, Godson mm. is great. It was written was great. Stillmatic, which is the 10 year anniversary of Illmatic is also a great album. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's, kind of him being like, remember me, I'm Nas, you know, yeah. uh, uh, when he does the ego raps, you know, he even talks about, he's like, I don't do the bragging raps, you know, um, but it, I think that's him feeling like I am underappreciated. Like right. He, yeah. Yeah, and that to me, astrologically speaking, I, I would say like that is a domain that Jay-Z probably does have him beat. I really think like when I look at his chart, uh Nas's chart, I I think pers on a on a personal level, he has a bit of a myopic. Uh, astrologically speaking, there's a bit of a myopic framework personally. When he's able to speak to a kind of larger saga a larger pain that others where he's speaking for kind of a generation or where he's speaking from this point of view that to me is where the the sextile pattern in his chart really kind of comes together so mm -hmm. i think it's really difficult in the industry he is in um and in the masculine arena he is in of course to not get lost in that kind of ego um 
ego overhyping basically mm-hmm. um i would just say like astrologically speaking for him it's just not going to click the way it might which i think is a good thing because i think and you know correct me if i'm wrong i think his legacy is about something much more than that i think it is but it, you know in the music industry it kind of weirdly enough is like you know there was trauma porn so it's yeah. like oh yeah keep talking about the projects and he's like but i want to talk about me and who am i if i keep talking about these street tales but i'm trying to remove myself from that pain and they're like nah talk about death talk about queensbridge and when you come from the biggest project it's like the allure to rep is so hard i could imagine like you have to be super grounded not to lose yourself and then on top of that to have survived it makes you want to brag because you're like man i did this this and this are you kidding i feel that you know that i'm just like i'm a tv writer i'm from the projects that's that's completely uh unprecedented like that like i think he walks around i know i feel this i can speak to myself of you know especially talking to white people or anybody who didn't have my upbringing it's like you're not supposed to know me like you might not understand me, but mm. like you're not supposed to know me anyway, considering what I've been through and, mm. you know, coming from where I'm from. And I think that that's the real key balance. I think in his life, that's a theme that we're discussing is balancing talking about him and what he's overcome and these people that have passed in the generation that he's speaking to that's been essentially lost. You know, the black girl lost that he talks about. Uh, you know, in his past albums, you know, the lost tapes, it's like the old relics of records he's dug up, but it's also speaking to, in, in those records, all the lost people, you know, and, mm. you know, all, all the shit that he's just been through. I think, I think it's, he's still parsing through. I think he's, I think he's doing a, a good job, especially on the, the, the um, heels of a Grammy win. So that I mean, everything you just said is so right with his Pluto Mercury of speaking for the dead, um, speaking for the lost. I love that. Um, Yeah, I guess. Listen, you know, he's a Venus in Scorpio. I think that kind of says what it needs to say about his his love life. Um, And, you know, it's it's obviously like very upsetting and 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 dark to hear this sort of thing and, and i think we're still parsing through like how we sort this out um i i guess i'm just curious in terms of his larger legacy generally is there anything else you want to say or bring up or impart with him because i do feel like we've done a good job of kind of covering his his intrinsic elemental aspects mm. i don't know i think that he um this is an interesting thing I thought about the other day, his relationship with Amy Winehouse. Mm. So, you know, it's a different uh, connection to somebody that's been lost considering he comes from the projects. Like that was all gun violence or, or, or not, not sweeping under the rug, making broad generalization, but it was easier. I think that that loss was considerable and probably me just guessing like, hard for him to understand having lost someone 
one way and then have this what some people would say as like a like a not typical or like different like friendship just like different upbringings and then to lose a friend that way in a way that maybe was a little mm. bit surprising is probably even though obviously you know you, you lose people to drugs and different things like i think it was a difficult loss for him to take him out of that intrinsic i just think about their dynamics so you know she, she has a song called me and mr jones that is so sweet um yes and um yeah i think i think that that was a loss that was really hard for him to take and he still processes and it says a lot about his humanity i think he is a caretaker you know the story the stories he, he tells about other people are also you know intertwined with her story because you know as you see this black man and this Jewish woman, it's like this Jewish woman who does ostensibly black music and a man who comes from a blues background, you may not have all that context, but if you did, their relationship would make a lot of sense. And I think that um, the stories that she was telling through her music and, and what Mr. and Mrs. Jones represented about their stories helped him see himself in a different way. This is just me just guessing. Just just kind of looking into my own relationships with friends, you know, who, who seemingly we have nothing in common from a surface level, but you go a little deeper, it's like these people are helping me grow who seem completely distant from my own background. I do want to say like, you know, he has his Venus in Scorpio is in a helpful trine with Saturn and Cancer. You know, when you mentioned his father, who was, uh, I think, a jazz musician, whose mm -hmm. uh, music he kind of incorporated into his own, uh, Saturn really often represents the father. And uh, when we see Saturn and Venus, it's usually a uh, romantic or a professional relationship uh, involving an age gap, it, it, usually involving like maybe a mentor and a younger person uh, or some kind of like a father figure. He, his Saturn is in that square with Pluto and it's in a trine with Venus. So to me, I got it. And by the way, his Saturn's in Cancer, which like, you know, Cancer with music to me, I just think there's such a connection in terms of like passing on the lifeblood of, of the story, passing on the milk of the story. So I just got the sense that through his Venus, through his art, he's able to kind of transform his father's, um, his father's, the, this kind of Saturn lineage, this heritage through music into a new form of art. Great. And to me, I, I, I don't think the age difference with Amy Winehouse was remarkable in any way. Uh, but there, I see a lot of the Saturn Venus there, which is this kind of feminine, masculine, um, in this, especially because it's in Cancer and Scorpio, it's in this very um, intense, in, at this kind of distance where they're able to teach one another. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of see his relationship, at least astrologically speaking, maybe there's, there's a different explanation, but I really see like he and Amy Winehouse as kind of like um, teaching one another from different mm -hmm. ends. Um, you know, it, it's like, it, it's different than peership. It, it's kind of like from from different worlds, being able to act as like mentor, student and reversed, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, now I haven't seen the doc in a while. I just, 
I don't remember a lot of aspects of, you know, very specific details about their relationship, but, uh, you know, I agree with that sentiment. It's different worlds come together. I mean, that's a, that's a gap that I feel in uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm. You know, it's like I write for this Jewish show, but I'm black and it's like, what's the connection? It's like, well, the connection is like, you know, not only I grew, grew up in New York and knew Jewish people, but connecting that feminine energy to that of being raised by a single mom, like I was able to relate to uh, just seeing her experience and that of being my caretaker. And when it came time to pitch something for season three of something for the character Rose, uh, you know, Midge's mom to do, Amy was basically like, oh, what, you know, we need to give her something to do for season three. And I pitched that she'd be a matchmaker, not just because, you know, Rose is a mom who wants to have her daughter Midge pair off with someone. So then she gets in involved in other people's business so that she can be this, you know, still be this, you know, uh, kind of very nosy mom. But because I saw my mom in that character, like I wanted so much for my mom. I wanted so much my mom not to live through other people. You know, when Rose went in season two to Paris, because my mom's a single mom sacrificed so much, I wanted my mom to go to Paris. I saw my mom there. I was like, I want my want that for my mother. So when it came time to give something for Rose, that feminine energy I was able to tap into because I was like, what does she need to feel like she is back in that same place where she's taking that break for herself, that break from her life, you know, the thing that she needs, that feminine energy connecting that. I think that to bring that in a line of what we were saying and just connecting that feminine energy, being raised by a single mom as a, as a boy, especially a lot of black boys go through this, I think is something that when they individual black males are connected into, they can tap into that. It's something that is underappreciated. I think uh, individual black boys that become black men understand that feminine energy. And I think it's something that Nas reflects and refracts when he taps into it, it's great. And that his relationship with women, when it is positive and is one that is not steeped in, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, this patriarchal masculinity that seeks to control and dominate women is one that is protective and nurturing that comes from that same place of safety. When obviously the, the mothers have been caretakers that you want to embody and you remember, you know? I mean, thank you. That That's incredible because, you know, I, his Venus and his Mars are both in supportive aspects with his Lilith. And Lilith is woman exiled. And I think, yes, that, you know, this is just like me reading his astrology and, and making a presupposition. But, I, you know, I think based on what you're saying, there is this aspect of, an understanding of what it is to be rejected or exiled that is mm. common among women and, and other people yeah and other people and i right. think like he is his venus in scorpio is able to say like oh i can speak to that like i, I think mm. that his artistry is able to bring that out which is more common and universal um yeah. This is so interesting. Like I was talking with some friends the other day about like 
the reason they can never remake Funny Girl is because who could like who could be Barbara Streisand? You know what I mean? Like Barbara Streisand mm. grew up, I think, in Bed Stuy, like in the projects. She did like she had a single mother who was never proud of her, and she just like came for blood. And I was saying like it. The only person I could think of who doesn't even who isn't a musical star, but like is like someone like Tiffany Haddish who like before mm. she became big was sleeping in her car just because that's the thing but but it's that experience it it's hard to put into words like what that is rather mm. than just like well Barbara Streisand was Jewish it needs to be a Jewish person now it's like yes and the character's Jewish but like the 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 experience itself which I think you just put so eloquently like with uh writing this character on mrs mazel is like it's connecting aspects of like being othered through race or gender in the time uh mm-hmm. and transmuting that you know mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um you know my meditation teacher says this is just like how do you connect with people it's like mm. the two things you do to connect with someone is to think about how you feel safe and think about how, how how do you feel safe and how do you stay how do you stay is like stay in the discomfort to actually have the connection from the discomfort from your body to uh you know something that your brain can learn because that's classical can that's classical training like your your brain is uncomfortable right so i mean your body's part of me is uncomfortable and you use that discomfort to transmute that thing to connect with someone you stay in the discomfort so your brain learns a lesson so your brain learns the lesson like oh either it's not like oh this is not okay to do it's like i stay in that to learn a lesson about somebody or an experience and then Mm. how do i feel safe is like i know how my otherness doesn't make me feel safe how do I make someone else feel safe so I don't have to feel from that otherness like a place of discomfort and they they kind of move in conjunction with each other? How do I feel safe? How do I stay? And being able to parse those is how to make a connection and and to kind of um, articulate, I think, you know, humanness or artistic expression or connection, like that's the foundation, I think. Because then from, from a place of safety, you can do so much. That's what we've been talking about with Nas. It's like, right. he didn't feel safe for so long. How did he feel safe? Telling these stories. How, how did he stay? He, he, he talked about them and he was uncomfortable. And they, it, they gave his, his brain the power to be able to like decipher these, these coded things from government, from even himself. Yeah knowing that he had to overcome certain things, patriarchal masculinity being a big part of that mm. to, you know, I don't know, said a lot of words, if any of that. Yeah, sense. it was gorgeous. It was all gorgeous. Yeah, this is so expansive. So thank you. Um, mm. I suppose I feel quite good about this. So I'm, I guess I'm curious if there's anything like you want to add in closing about this, um, about about Nas generally or, or anything that we've talked about mm. or anything you think people should be checking out 
in regards to him, etc. Yeah, I think um, a good place to start is to just like get the feeling of what Illmatic is. Mm. Like there's obviously certain language that uh, wouldn't be accepted today. But honestly, and people say this a lot, oh, what, what was I doing at that age? Like actually think about what you were doing when you were 19 and then imagine what it would what it would be like to be somebody with this immense talent and then kind of, you know, take it from there. I think, you know, the theme being don't uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater um, mm. is, uh, you know, a, a big theme in all of our lives. But in talking about Nas, it's in complex figures and luminaries, right? Hello. It's, you know, hello. It's <laughs> important to remember. So, and okay. So, you are not on social media, I think, which is like the chicest thing I've ever seen, right? No, yeah, I'm not. God bless. Okay. Well, so, just on Facebook a tiny bit. Okay. Uh, obsessed with that. So, people can be following your work, damn it, uh, on the upcoming seasons of Atlanta and Mrs. Maisel, correct? Uh, or YouTube, or uh, at right. uh, the nearest Erewhon. <laughs> <laughs> you, that is like the biggest fucking flex is being like, yeah, I can shop at Erewhon now. It's like, that is the way to prove like, look how far I've come. I'm at Erewhon yeah. getting like the Manuka honey. Yeah. God bless. Last black man in Silver Lake. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Um, <laughs> okay uh jordan thank you for doing this this was really such a good one and so uh, fun, i'm so grateful and and i i really hope you enjoy your vacation thank you i'll pump that thank you thank you thank you the Luminaries is made with love in New York City. Consulting producer, Carly Hugendijk. Music by Henry Kapersky and designed by Greg Kozatek. To book a reading, follow my illustrious life, or let me know who you think we should profile on the next episode, you can follow me on Instagram, david underscore odyssey, or email adavidodyssey at gmail.com. Please share, rate, subscribe. You know the drill. Love you. See you next Tuesday. Mwah.